If one looked hard enough, one could see an outline of a figure in the distance. In the swirling desert heat, the figure seemed to be riding on a horse, and as it loomed closer, the mysterious figure rode out of the desert across the, the dry, broken ground over some sparse patches of grass through an old rustic graveyard. The lone figure slowly made his way into the small mining town by the lake and he could see that not many people were outside as the, as the horse carried him through the center of town. The ones who were outside gave the mysterious stranger very curious glances. He gets off the horse and slowly goes into the saloon and there's nervous, awkward silence and some more curious looks from the handful of men at the end of the bar. And the stranger asks for both a beer and a bottle of whiskey and some peace in which to drink them. And then three suspicious-looking characters begin to size up the mysterious stranger. I've just described to you the opening scene of a certain type of film. What is it? That's a Western. It's a Western. And specifically, it's the 1973 film, High Plains Drifter, starring Clint Eastwood. Um, it's a tense scene. But whether it's late 19th century way out west, or the far east of the first century, we all wonder what's going to happen when strangers come to town. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. There at the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Jesus has been born. He's been born in Bethlehem of Judea and in the days of Herod the king. And this is the first mention of Herod the king in the New Testament. I mean, we're at the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, we've just been through chapter 1. We're now starting in chapter 2. So this is the first time we see Herod. And, and, and what the reason that Matthew does this 
This is to establish the, the when in history. It's similar to me saying to you before 9-11 or after 9-11. Certain images, you know, come to your mind and you think about the timeline. Um, and that statement, this establishes a timeline in the days of Herod the king. Well, who is Herod? Well, history refers to him as Herod the Great, and, and he was probably born in the area in the, known in the Old Testament as Edom, E-D-O-M. And it's an area south of where we are talking about in Bethlehem. And the Edomites, they're, they're descended from the eldest son of one of the founding fathers of the faith, Isaac. Uh, Isaac's son Esau. The Edomites are, are descended from Esau. And Herod, Herod was raised, he was raised as a Jew. His father had political ties to another man of whom you've heard, uh, Julius Caesar. And, and so this leads Herod to becoming first the governor of Galilee, and then he is appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And in essence, Herod owes his throne to Rome. And his rule is full of political intrigue and cloak and dagger and, 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 and his family's lives could play out like a soap opera. <laughs> uh, and as a result, this, this is kind of the backdrop of Jerusalem in that day. Just a lot of drama, a lot of tension. It, it, it's, there's national prominence and grandeur, but it's atop this smoking powder keg of, of crushing taxation, conflicts with people groups, uh, Jews versus Romans. It, it's, it's just, it's about to explode. And then these magi arrive in Jerusalem. Well, who are they? Well, they're, they're wise men, and they're, they specialize in things like astronomy and astrology, uh, natural science, sometimes magic, fortune-telling. And, and magi is plural. If, if, if I was going to tell you about one, he would be known as a magus, and you've seen that word in Scripture as well. Um, well, these magi, they're, 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 they've been traveling from the east, and, and directions in Scripture often mean more than simply direction. They're, they're often symbolic. And heading east, heading east can be interpreted as moving away from God's presence. If you remember when we started reading the story of Jonah several months ago, uh, when, when Jonah was running away from God, he ran east... He ran east. And so these, these magi, they're, in all probability, they're, they're from a pagan land. They're Gentiles. They're Gentiles from, from a foreign land. And, and I was going to refer to them as pagans, but if you remember what we just saw in verse 2, these magi have come to worship the king. So they're not... They're... They're interested in worshiping. So the Gentiles, and, and these magi, they, they probably wouldn't be traveling alone. The text doesn't specify, but in those days, that, that area, that terrain is, is festooned with robbers and thieves and 
ooh, it's just not safe to travel. And, and to undertake a journey that requires some kind of planning and overhead, I, I'm thinking that these magi probably have some amount of means. Well, these magi ride into town. And they arrive asking a question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They say, we saw his star and have come to worship him. So much like Clint Eastwood, they ride into town and it's already there's something stewing. And they start asking these uncomfortable questions. But what do they mean when they're talking about his star? His star. Well, these magi are referring to a story from way back in the Old Testament found in the book of Numbers. What I'd like for you to do real quick is, is take, your, take an insert from the bulletin and mark where we are in Matthew 1. And I want you to flip back to the beginning of the Bible. Just close the book and then you're going to open it up to the fourth book in the Bible, the book of Numbers. Something I want you to see because this, this, is, this, is, this is something. In Numbers chapter 22, the Israelites, they're camping in the plains of an area called Moab. And it's beyond the Jordan, opposite Jericho. And we know we're Jer- we've heard of Jericho as Joshua fought the battle and they marched around Jericho seven times. That happens later on in the book of Joshua. But, so this is prior to that. But in Numbers 22, the king of Moab, his name is, is, is Balak, and he's afraid of the Israelites. He's another king who's afraid of somebody coming into his territory. So Balak calls for a prophet to call down a curse on Israel. And the prophet's name is Balaam. And this is what king says to Balaam. He says, Behold, a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land and they're living opposite to me. This is, a, this is in Numbers 22, verse 6. We read this. Now therefore, please come and curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. And perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Well, and, and then Balaam the prophet says essentially, what the Lord speaks, I will speak. If God gives me the word, I'll say it. If whatever God gives me is the word, I will say it. Well, Balaam sees that it pleases the Lord to bless Israel. And in fact, Balaam blesses Israel three times. We'll go ahead and turn over two chapters to Numbers chapter 24. And I want you to turn to verse 10. I'm going to pick it up there. King, King Balak's anger burns against Balaam. And the king says, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Then Balaam says to Balak, 
Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, you know, what the Lord speaks, I will speak? Well, then Balaam gives King Balak a warning that is it's cryptic, it's mysterious. And this is what I want you to see and make a note of this. Numbers 24, verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. And then in verse 18, we read that Edom shall be a possession. And and if you remember just from a few minutes ago, Edom, that's where wicked King Herod is from. And in Numbers 24, 19, we see this. One from Jacob shall have dominion. Dominion is rule. This star will shine over one from Jacob who will rule and shepherd his people. It's scriptures like this that give me chills. And I'm not alone. (laughs) You can go ahead and shut numbers and go back to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, King Herod hears this. He hears these questions, these magi are asking, and he, you know, he's troubled, as the text tells us, and all Jerusalem with him. There's a lot of nervous, nervous unease. Herod hears about the magi and their line of questioning, And Herod is troubled. Why? Well, Herod is afraid for his throne. He's paranoid. Uh, Herod doesn't take perceived challenges to the throne very well. Uh, By this time in Herod's kingship, he's already had his queen murdered, as well as two of his sons. I read a quote stating that a frequent comment of that day You know, it's interesting that people made comments about their political leaders in that day, too. It's interesting. (laughs) Uh, One comment of that day was that it was safer to be Herod's pig than in Herod's family. (laughs) You know, Herod is, he hears voices, he's always looking over his shoulder. And it's not only him. Look there, it says, all Jerusalem is troubled. Well, why is all Jerusalem troubled? Well... In essence, the statement that we've all heard at one time or another, if mama ain't happy, what? (laughs) Ain't nobody happy. Yeah. And I've presented to you a snapshot of of Herod and his self-esteem or his lack thereof. And essentially, if Herod's not happy, no one in the province is going to be happy. All Jerusalem is troubled. And so in verse 4, gathering all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquires of them where the Messiah was to be born. And and, and he gathers all the chief priests and the scribes, and and some of these had to be Herod's henchmen and cronies. I'm not going to say all of them. I don't like it when 
when religious leaders are all painted with the same brush, you know? But here's what happens. These, a lot of these henchmen, a lot of these guys had to be henchmen and cronies. I mean, there's this tension between the Romans and the Jews, and there's this tightrope between religion and politics, and, and we've already had the privilege of already being introduced to some of the priests and the scribes in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, when we began our, our study of kingdom encounters. We heard John the Baptist take on some of these religious leaders, and, and he, I don't know if you remember, but he gave, John the Baptist gave these religious leaders this warm, inviting greeting. He, he called them a, a brood of vipers, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, so they, they kind of have a reputation. And so these, these religious leaders tell Herod, uh, when, when he asks about the location of the birth of the Messiah, and they tell him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The chief priests and the scribes, you know, they're consulting the law and the prophets, and that's really interesting, but it's also ironic. They're, they're quoting the prophet Micah. Micah, specifically Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And Micah says that out of Bethlehem shall come forth a ruler to shepherd Israel. And, and these Pharisees, these, these, excuse me, these, these priests and scribes, they're, they're right, but they only see in part. These leaders remember the story uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 17. They remember David, you know, that young, that young small son of a man named Jesse. Jesse was from Bethlehem in Judah. It's interesting. Jesse's son David was this small shepherd boy who would grow up to become king of Israel. And, and so I, I think that's all these religious leaders who are dealing with Herod, I think that's all they're able to see. Well, then Herod secretly calls the Magi to meet with him and determines from them the exact time the star appeared. Herod's working both sides against the middle. He doesn't let his henchmen know <laughs> that he is consulting the Magi. He in popular vernacular, he reaches out to the Magi. And he, he wants no one else to know about this meeting because he doesn't want anyone else to know all the pieces of the riddle. And Herod wants sole, sole control of the chessboard. And he asked the Magi the exact time the star appeared. Why? Herod has been told already the location, that's Bethlehem. But knowing the window of time will help Herod build a profile of his opponent. This gives him a time frame in which to, to craft a plan. Um, I see this and I can't help but think that Herod is trying to figure out who has the head start here, Herod or his rival. His rival is a child, but Herod is always looking back over his shoulder. 
And he sends them there in verse 8 to Bethlehem and says, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. The Grinch. You remember when the Grinch is in the house and Cindy Lou Who comes out and Boris Karloff, who is narrating, calls Grinch. He says, that old liar. Yeah, Herod, what a liar, man. Herod tells the Magi the following, go and search, and when you find him, report to me, and I'll come and worship him. Right, gotcha. Yeah, you will. The Magi, after hearing the king, they, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So they, they get this message from Herod, the Magi do. They, they are going to follow the star which had been first seen in the east, and they take off after the star, and the star is now at the location of the child. When they see the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They see the new location, and there is much rejoicing. Yay! Exceedingly, with great joy. When you see a statement that has repetition, which seems redundant, look again. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When's the last time that you or I rejoiced in that fashion? After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they arrive at the destination, they go into the house, and they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall to the ground and they worship the child. They, they fall to the ground. These wise men are carrying treasure, and, and that tells us they... That clarifies the question we had earlier, that they're obvious, it's obvious that they're men of means. And if they've carried treasure, this also tells us they would have been traveling with bodyguards. They are men of esteem. And, and to esteem something is to take pride in something. And, 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 and they've traveled, and they've made inquiry, and they've rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they've fallen to the ground to worship a child. These, these Gentiles, in all of their pomp and their circumstance and their pageantry, have put all that on the ground before the child king. That's a definition of humility there. 
They open their treasure, and, and what do they bring? Similac. No. <laughs> no formula. Diapers, no. Well, he's referred to as a child, not a baby. Training pants. No. Savings bonds for college. No. <laughs> Amazon gift cards. An iPhone. No, no, none of that. <laughs> Gold and frankincense and myrrh. If I was coming to bring homage to a king, I'd want to bring the best of what I had. And, and if I was a man of means, gold is still the standard of measure. Frankincense, that's that smelly stuff, incense. And incense, it's of great value. Uh, incense was used in worship of the Lord in the tabernacle in the temple. So there's gold and there's incense, elements of great worth and esteem and, and worship. And then there's myrrh. Myrrh is an ointment. Myrrh shows up twice in the New Testament, here in Matthew chapter 2. And then if we read a little further in John chapter 19... Following the crucifixion of Jesus, when Jesus' body is claimed by Joseph of Arimathea, he and a man named Nicodemus prepare Jesus' body for burial. And Nicodemus brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes for burial. Why would these magi bring embalming ointment? Well, we know these magi, these wise men, we know that they read the Law and the Prophets. I mean, they, they knew about the star from back in Numbers. They, they, they know the stories of the kings of Israel and, and Judah. They, 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 that's how they knew about the king of the Jews and, and the promises made to, to David by God. These, these magi must know about Hebrew worship then, the holiness of God and the unholiness of man and the need for forgiveness of sin that requires a sacrifice. And, I, and I'm guessing they've read all of the scrolls of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and following read this. Surely our griefs, He Himself, and those are capital H's by the way, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins, and, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his beatings, by some of your translations would read, by his stripes, we are healed. 
this suffering servant of whom Isaiah writes. And I think these magi see this suffering servant and this one who would be pierced through as an atoning atoning sacrifice for all the sins for all the people. And so these gifts... There's elements of worth, the gold. There's elements of worship with the frankincense. And with the myrrh, there... What will ultimately lie ahead for the child? Elements of worth and worship and what will ultimately lie ahead. Wow. Matthew tells us in verse 12 that after having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the the Magi left for their own country by another way. They, They leave for home. They go back to the east. They return to their own country. They're they're going home. And and the Magi will return home, but they're going to travel a different road. They, They did not return to Herod as he commanded. They they never go back to Jerusalem. Why? They had been warned not to, warned by God, warned by God in a dream. And by going a different route, the Magi will not encounter any kind of surprise envoy ambush from Herod. Kingdom Encounters. How does Herod respond? Well, a few verses later in verse 16 and following, when Herod sees that he has been tricked by the Magi, he becomes very enraged. And he sends, says that he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Rage and jealousy are horrible, horrible things. How do the Magi respond to their kingdom encounter? These Gentiles from another land rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And and they bring sacrifices of worth and value, humbling themselves before the child king. When's the last time that you or I rejoiced in that same fashion?
Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we read words that so many of us have heard so many times. When we think of the response of these magi, I can't help but think of a story we will see later in Matthew, which we've read in the last few weeks, of the one who stumbles upon that great treasure and with joy sells everything he has to obtain that that great treasure. Father, these magi with all of their pomp and pageantry and all of their lives, they come and they lay it all before a baby, one whom they were called to worship, one that I believe they could see would provide salvation, atoning salvation and sacrifice for them. And they came with great joy. Father, in this season, I pray that you would give us a reawakening and a, and a re-awareness of the great joy that Jesus, the giver of joy, brings when He comes into the midnight of our lives. One who has loved our souls so very much and so very deeply, loved our souls to the point of going to the cross. Help us to have a fresh awareness of that this day, this season, as we stand and we worship you in song. It's in your son's strong name we pray and we worship.